Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. Thank you so much for joining us on this special edition of the Good Fight Radio Show. On today's episode, we're going to be having Dr. Michael J. Kruger, who is the president and Samuel C. Patterson, professor of New Testament and early Christianity at Reform Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. Dr. Kruger is one of the leading scholars in the study of the origins of the New Testament, particularly the development of the New Testament canon. He's the author of 11 books, including The Heresy of Orthodoxy and Canon Revisited, both of which we will be discussing today. So without any further ado, we want to welcome Dr. Michael J. Kruger to the Good Fight Radio Show. Well, Welcome, uh, Dr. Kruger. Well, thanks. It's great to be with you. Look forward to uh, having this conversation. Well, praise the Lord. I, I am really, really excited about this because I had read a number of your books now and as well as listened to you communicate this. And one of the things that I found so interesting was actually in the in the preface here in the uh, the heresy of orthodoxy where you had a a quotation from Dr. Daniel Wallace speaking about the book and he said this that the book was oozing with common sense and backed up with solid research and documentation and I could not express something better than that when I read that book I just thought there is so much common sense to what you're bringing forth. And I want I wanted to the audience for the Good Fight Radio Show to hear some of the common sense arguments when it comes to the questions that we have. Maybe we're hearing it on the streets, maybe for a young kid going off to college, hearing it for the first time. Just the questions of what is Scripture, the development of Scripture. And I think the best place to start is to ask Dr. Kruger just what is canon? What is the definition of canon? Yeah, well, that's a word that we throw around in the theological world a good bit, and it probably is different than what most people hear. When they hear canon, they think of the word C-A-N-N-O-N, which is the kind of canon you lighten that shoots a cannonball out. Um, the word canon here just has one N in the middle, and it's a word that's historically used to refer to a rule or standard, and we've used it as Christians historically to refer to what's called the canon of Scripture, and that's just a, a reference to that collection of books that we have in our Bibles both Old and New Testament. And it's really uh, a question that's unique to Christianity, because Christianity's Bible is, uh, is special just because of the fact that it doesn't have just one book, but many books. And in the New Testament, 27 books. And so anybody who's defending the New Testament's authority can't just defend the New Testament generically. You have to ask the question, well, how was this put together? Who put it together? When did it happen? And why should we think it's normative? Uh, and then on top of that, uh, there's the question of why these books and no others. And so the question of canon is essential to our understanding of biblical authority, and it's a question that most people eventually are going to ask someday if they, if they pause to think about it. You know, in the Canon Revisited book that you have, you know, you, you mentioned there's different definitions. Specifically, there's an exclusive definition, there's a functional definition, and an ontological definition when it comes to canon. So I'd love for you to ferret that out a little bit for the audience who have maybe never heard of these words or even understands what they're saying. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, a lot of the confusion over canon and a lot of the debate is about definition. Um, people 
think they know what they mean when they say the word canon, but historically scholars have meant different things by it. And once you understand that there's differences in definition, that can explain some of the disagreement. So, for example, one of the things I hear people say a lot is that the church didn't have a canon until the fourth century. Um, I, I hear that repeated by both Christians and non-Christians, that there was no Bible to the fourth century, there was no canon to the fourth century. Well, it really depends on what they mean by the word canon there. If they mean uh, there wasn't a full, final consensus on all 27 books, you know, everything all tidied up um, and all the boundaries solidified, well, yeah, there's probably some sense in which that finally happened in the fourth century. But if they mean by that, well, there was no Bible at all or no canon at all or no, no clarity on what to read before that, that would be a mistaken view. Um, and so what I try to do in my book is, is to distinguish these different approaches to canon. So the idea that you, you only have canon when you have a final fixed closed list, that's what I call the exclusive view. And on that view, you wouldn't have a canon of the fourth century. But I argue that there's what's called a functional view of canon where, well, what about if we have books functioning like scripture? Couldn't we say we have a canon then, even if the boundaries aren't finished and, and solidified? And the answer is, of course. And if we ask that question, even by the middle of the second century, we've got a functioning canon of about 22 out of 27 books. And so in that sense, you have canon long before uh, the fourth century. And then the ontological definition is just simply recognizing that the canon is something that really God is doing and not humans. And so there, there in principle can be a canon even before you know about it. As soon as God gives all the books, you have one, even if no one's yet recognized them. And so on that term, you'd have a canon even in the first century. So we have to look at it from, from, from all those different angles if we're going to get a full-orb sense of what we mean by canon. Yeah, I think one of the things I noticed, not only in your books, The Heresy of Orthodoxy and Canon Revisited specifically, but also in some of the, the speaking engagements you've done, is explaining to people that this is a theological discussion and that a lot of people, when they're looking back at canon, you're, you're going to all these evidences for early canon and so forth, but just getting a, a, an understanding in our heads that really this question is theological in nature. Is that right? Yeah, so it, it depends on what question you're asking. If you're asking, well, you know, when did this happen? Or if you ask the question of, you know, which church father accepted which books? Well, I mean, you can get into some of the historical data there and, and, and get some answers. But the question people ask is not that most of the time. Most of the time people are question, asking the question, well, how do we know we have the right books? Now, as soon as you start asking that question, that's not a question that you can answer just simply by pulling together a bunch of historical data, because as soon as you ask how we know, well, then you've got to back into the Christian understanding of how we know things. And What's the Christian worldview say about how we can establish God's voice from other things and so on? And those are all theological categories. And so I argue that you can't really answer the question of canon in terms of which books are the right books unless you have certain theological uh, categories and a certain theological framework in mind. So it's not just simply raw historical study. It requires both historical study and a theological uh, understanding of what, what Christianity teaches. And so you really need both together. And, and the reason that's an important point to make is because most studies of the canon don't include the theological dimension. Almost all prior studies of canon have been, have been you know, narrowly historical, and, and that's fine. It's just that I don't think it ever gets to the nub of the issue. Yeah, and I, I just want to ask uh, more on a personal level for you. When it comes to this question of canon and scripture and us being able to trust this, have you found this to be somewhat of a discipleship question in terms of the, the young men and women that you may be discipling and teaching? Is this something that it has become an issue just in your regular regular everyday layman coming to the, the question of, well, how can I trust this, this Bible that we have? Yeah, my, my experience 
is that people in the pews, so to speak, are asking these questions. The, pe- the average person in the church wants to know how the Bible was put together, and it, it, it is a sticking point for a lot of people. And it's not just Christians that are asking these questions. Non-Christians are asking these questions when they inquire about the truth of the faith, and so they need an answer, too. And so, you know, I remind people that, you know, this isn't just one of those scholastic questions that academics are pondering. This is a real-life question, so to speak, that, 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 that every Christian at some level or another wants to get answers to. And so the, the reason for this is because of the, the way information flows today. You know, and, you know, 30 years ago, most people wouldn't have access to this debate unless you're reading particular scholarly works. Whereas now, obviously, people have access to these debates in all kinds of ways uh, through social media and the Internet and so on. And so it's just out there more. And if it's out there more, then people want want answers to the questions they have. Yeah, amen. And, you know, one of the things that you brought out, and I've heard you mention this uh, specifically in different interviews, was you talked about somewhat of when you wrote uh, these books that you were a little surprised that a lot of the the backlash came from those of the Roman Catholic uh, tradition. But one of the things that you pointed out, I saw, was that a lot of these objections that the Roman Catholics were bringing to you in the books that you've written, both Canon Revisited and Heresy of Orthodoxy, in both cases, they seemed eerily similar to the arguments of, let's say, uh, Bart Ehrman, so to speak. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So when I wrote Canon Revisited, and it's been more than a decade now, um, I wrote it with a certain conversation partner in my mind, and that conversation partner was mainly uh, critical scholarship. Um, and, you know, there's, m- there's much to appreciate about critical scholarship, but I was anticipating some of the objections they would have, and I was trying to navigate those. And Roman Catholicism was, was, was a conversation partner in my head and part of the book, but certainly not as a whole. But then when the book came out, I could tell that I'd sort of kicked a hornet's nest a bit there, and they were pretty uh, eager to, to, to argue against it. And so essentially their argument is that, that, that early Christianity and the canon in early Christianity was, was too chaotic, too undetermined, too um, unsettled to trust anything that was happening. And, and in fact, it required effectively the church to swoop in and, and kind of save the day by picking the right books in rescuing Christianity from its confusion. Um, in order to make that point, um, I noticed that these, these, these Catholics were making arguments very much like Bart Ehrman's argument. So Ehrman would make the same argument, which is that it was chaotic, it was unorganized, there was no real heresy or orthodoxy, it was all a, uh, a bunch of competing versions of the faith, and only later did it get settled when certain powers that be settled it. Now, what you, what you find ironically, then, is that the, the Roman Catholic argument and Ehrman's argument are exactly the same until the very end. And in the very end, the Roman Catholic argument is, well, you have an infallible church that solves it all. And Ehrman would say, no, you don't. You just have a church, but that's not remotely infallible that sort of solved it. But there's no reason I think these books are special or any, any better than any others. So it's, it's a remarkable uh, parallel, and it's something I've noticed, and I think— uh, and I pointed it out to some Roman Catholics before in conversations, and I think maybe they haven't even noticed themselves that they effectively are making a higher critical argument to make their case. Yeah, I, I found that so fascinating to think uh, such strange bedfellows <laughs> there, you know, instead of 
you know, coming against the scriptures, uh, you know, in order to prove that, you know, there's no, you know, we can't have any trust in them. It's coming against the scriptures so that then we can put all of our our trust into the, what they would call the Holy Catholic Church. I always found that very interesting. And one of the things I, I noticed, especially when you, when you develop the understanding of the self-authenticating model of canon, I thought this was really profound. And I thought, Wow, that whole oozing common sense, not only in the heresy of orthodoxy, but also in this book, I felt like what you were expressing here in the self-authenticating model of canon was something that just spoke volumes to me. I was like, well, this is what I believe, but I have never articulated it this way. So I would love for you to to kind of break down what the self-authenticating model of canon uh, is. Yeah, so when someone says, how do I know a book is from God, or maybe more narrowly in this conversation, how do I know a New Testament book is from God, um, I argue there's multiple ways to answer that question. Um, and, and, and the problem is that, that up till now, at least, most people don't think about, I think, one of the most historical ways Christians have answered that question. So if you ask the average person, how do you know a book is from God, and they were aware of the, the, the field a little bit, they'd probably say, well... You could probably know a book is from God if it's written by an apostle or, or at least contains authoritative apostolic teaching. Or you could know a book is from God if it's maybe been received and used by the church. Okay, so these are two sort of things that you look to um, to determine whether a book perhaps comes from God. But what's overlooked in a lot of those discussions is the third category, um, and that is the content of the books themselves. And historically, Christians have believed that you can actually tell a book is from God by the actual content of the book. In other words... The books bear the, the internal marks or the internal indicators uh, or the eternal attrib- internal attributes of a book that comes from God's own hand. Um, and so what you realize then is that you don't need to necessarily look at historical data or authorship um, in order to know a book is from God. You can just know the book itself and, and recognize that this book has God's fingerprints all over it. Now, when I make that argument, that's just another way of saying that, that, the, that the, the books of the Bible are self-authenticating. To say a book is self-authenticating is just to say it bears its own internal marks of its divine origins. Now, when people hear that in the modern day, they think, wow, that, that, would you just make that up? Is that brand new? Where'd that idea come from? And I'm like, well, no, it's not, it's not at all something that's new. In fact, the Reformers talk like this a lot, and uh, I think particularly here of Calvin and Owen. But then the Church Fathers talk like this a lot, and I, I cover some of this in my book, too, which all the way back into the early centuries of the Church, the Church Fathers regarded the Scriptures as, a, as an ultimate starting point or a first principle that itself was uh, uh, self-authenticating and didn't need external validation. So this whole idea, then, of uh, an ultimate standard that authenticates itself is not at all new, and I think flows right out of our theological understanding of what the Bible is. So that's the essence of the argument. Um, and I, you know, I obviously I build a whole whole case on it in my book. And wh- one clarification I'll make is, if you believe in a self-authenticating Bible, that does not rule out. And I've tried to make this clear: that does not rule out the use of historical evidences. Mm. It just simply uh, indicates that that's not the only option. That you can also know a book is from God from other ways too. And so it's not one or the other, uh, but but it can be both. Uh, you know, I, and I, I just, I love that you're able to describe that, especially that it, this goes back all the way to the early church. And, and th- I guess this is a great time to transition to specifically talk about the book, The Heresy of Orthodoxy, because in this book, it seems like you bring out what is called the Bauer Thesis, but how it has been popularized 
by the likes of Bart Ehrman and and those of the Jesus Seminar and, and so forth. And and you could tell me if I'm wrong on this and, and what what I was what I was basically getting from it. And hopefully you can help me uh, walk through through it uh, with me here. But that the popularization of this Bauer thesis pretty much put all ancient heresy and the orthodoxy that we believe now in terms of uh, what we believe in biblical Christianity on level footing in the early church. Would you say that kind of describes what the Bauer thesis and then the popularization of that thesis have kind of put out there? Yeah, I think that's a fair way to say it. I mean, for those who don't know who Walter Bauer is, he was a German scholar in the early 20th century, wrote a very famous book in 1934 called Heresy and Orthodoxy and, and, um, in earliest Christianity. Um, and it is a book that was very uh, groundbreaking in its day. Um, in essence, what Bauer argues is that when you look into the early centuries of the church and the earliest centuries of Christianity, he argues there really was no Christianity. And what he means by that is that there are only Christianities, plural, all these different factions, groups, and segments, all claiming to be the original Christianity, all with widely different views on all kinds of matters from God to Jesus to salvation, all saying that they are the original real deal. And they're all warring it out to uh, see who prevails as, as true Christianity. Um, not warring it out literally as in physical combat, but theological battles over uh, truth and error. And says Bauer, only one group won. And the group you call Christianity today, which includes Paul and uh, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, well, those are the, the books of the theological winners, the ones who prevailed in that debate. But, says Bauer, why would you think those books are better than anybody, anybody else's book? I and mean, what if another group had won? Then you'd have another New Testament than the one you have today. So what if the Gnostics had won? You wouldn't be reading the Gospel of Luke. You'd be reading the Gospel of Philip or the Gospel of Mary or maybe the Gospel of Thomas. Um, if you uh, have another theological trajectory that won, then you would have a totally different canon. And so the essence of all that, Bauer would say, is that the canon you have today is just a, an accident of history. It's just the, the book that was produced by the theological winners. There's no reason to think that that version is any more true or original than any other version. You know, I, I, in reading The Heresy of Orthodoxy, as well as you mentioned this uh, quite a bit, as also in Canon Revisited, where you detail how the Old Testament's role in somewhat, I don't want to say debunking, I guess, but coming against some of the ideas that we brought forth in the Bauer thesis, as well as some ideas that we brought forth um, in Understanding Canon. And I'd love to know what the Old Testament's role in relation to the early church that would help aid us in understanding why the Bauer thesis is inaccurate. Yeah, well, Bauer's major claim is, is that the early Christians had no theological guidance, that they were flying blind. They, they didn't have their own canon, and they didn't have any canon or any sort of way to know what was orthodox or heretical. So therefore, they were all just kind of uh, in no man's land. But, but, but I think Bauer has overlooked, and I point this out in the book, is that, that Christians did have a canon and that they had always had a canon, namely the Old Testament. Um, and so you have the entire Old Testament corpus already in place, already established, already with a worldview, already with a theological system. So right out of the gate, Christians already had a trajectory and a paradigm, and whatever books they were going to receive into their Bibles would, would have to fit with the Bible they already had, with the Old Testament. You can't just say that they would have accepted the Gospel of Thomas when the Gospel of Thomas was antithetical to everything in the Old Testament. So this idea that Christians didn't really have a system and were, were sort of able to pick any old system out there just doesn't work, because Christians did have a canon already in the Old Testament. So it was a starting point, 
It was a foundation. It was a guide. And it would have ruled a lot of things out from the very start. And, you know, I'd, I'd love to know what you believe is some of the reason that this this viewpoint in modern culture, it seems like the, the Bauer thesis being popularized by the likes of the Jesus Seminar and by the likes of uh, Dr. Bart Ehrman, you know, when we look at the, just, I'm just telling you, for somebody who's out there sharing the gospel on the streets, I hear these accusations against the scripture coming, as you said, not only from Catholics, but from atheists, from Muslims. And why do you think in this culture, this this idea of diversity in the in the early form of Christianity, why do you think this is so popular today? Yeah, well, what I think is going on, and we mentioned this, of course, in the in, in, in the subtitle of the book, is I think you know our modern fascination with diversity and pluralism is is in effect being read back into the historical sources. So today, just looking at it from the modern day, we look out in the modern day and we see groups in the religious world that disagree and are in conflict and have different views. And the, in our modern world, which is very pluralistic, says, okay, if you have a bunch of groups that disagree, well, then no one group can be right. No one group would, could know they're right. So all, we have to sort of declare all groups equally valid. Okay, so that's what's happening in the modern day philosophically in our, in our, in our sort of postmodern world. Now, if you have that, that framework and you go back in history, it's not hard to, to see how you might end up really liking what you find in the Bauer thesis, because the Bauer thesis effectively is, is pluralism applied to the early centuries of the church, which is, oh, well, look, people disagreed in early Christianity. Look, there are different versions of the faith in early Christianity, which, which, by the way, is true. There were disagreements and there were different versions. But the conclusion is the problem, which is, therefore, no one view could be original, no one view could be right, and we're also obligated scholastically and academically to declare all views the same. Um, and to sort of, you know, put them all on equal, equal footing in terms of their validity and authenticity. And I, I find that to be a philosophical view, not a historical view. And this has been my point all along. Someone's free to do that, but don't, don't, don't pretend that's what historians have to do, um, as if we're obligated to follow that certain philosophical uh, way of looking at the world. <laughs> no, that, that is so interesting when we think about our, our modern culture today and this idea that diversity is such a good thing, and when it's, uh, it, is, it not always is. And, and I'd love to get into a little bit of the historical background as well, because, I, I mean, are we to believe that the heretics in the early Christian era, the early, Christ, you know, early attestation of, of Christianity right after the time of Jesus onto the apostles, were the heretics, were they somebody that were— you know, very unison in what they believed and not very fragmented, so to speak? Or was it something that was much more diverse than somebody like an, an airman or so would, would say in terms of the heretics? Well, there's different phases here. Um, you know, it, let, let, me, let, me, let me say, first of all, that Bauer was partly right, and I think we need to acknowledge that. So sometimes I think Christians can make the opposite mistake, where we, can, we, can, we, we assume that if God is in something, then, then, then early Christianity must be this pristine, perfect movement with no problems, disagreements, or factions. And we have this sort of overly sanitized vision of it. Um, and that's, that's also false. And so we need to recognize that it was, a, it was, a, it was not an easy time for the church. And it was, it was, there were factions and, and, and divisions and splits. Um, and we see some of this even in the pages of the New Testament. And I, and I would venture to say, to answer your question, that there's probably a lot more division and splits than people, people recognize, the average person recognizes. Um, and when you read the New Testament, you even see these even in, 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 in the days of, of the first century. Um, a lot of Paul's letters are dealing with heresy in his churches. We see, of course, that's happening when John wrote his letters at the end of the first century. Even Peter, 
um, the heretics were kind of all over the place. Um, and it tells you that whenever you have truth, you're going to have opposition to truth. Um, and that shouldn't shock us uh, or surprise us. And then as you move into the second century, it doesn't get better. It actually arguably gets worse. Uh, there's even more heretics and, fa- and factions that pop up. However, in the midst of all these, these, this diversity, and it is there, there is a core, there is a, a central uh, sort of trajectory of, of Christianity, what patristic writers often call the great church, where they recognize that even with all these little factions on the perimeter, there is some core historic views that, that, that seemingly Christians have always held from the beginning. And I think these can be sussed out and seen in earliest sources. So yeah, there's diversity, but there's also unanimity around a core, and, and, and that can't be overlooked. And it's that unanimity around the core that gives us a, 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 a degree of assurance and confidence that, that there's something real called Christianity that we can trace back to the beginning. And, you know, I was obviously in reading the Heresy of Orthodoxy and Canon Revisited, in both of these, you discuss not only the covenantal nature in terms of the documents that we have today, and, and I'd love to, to get into that a little bit more but I'd also love love to know about what the early church believed, specifically about the documents that they were receiving, maybe the letters of Paul, the Gospels, and so forth. What was the early church's reception of these documents? Yeah, so some, some people out there have a perception of canon that kind of goes something like this, where they think, okay, Paul wrote a letter, um, it was just a private correspondence where he just gave his own private views, and some people received it, and then and then some people received it and, and really liked it and started copying it. And then years went by and generations went by, and then more people got it. And then maybe 100 years goes by, and the church starts, you know, circulating it. And then finally someone says, you know what, these, these letters by Paul are great. I think we should make these scripture. What do you think? Okay, all in favor say aye, and then there's a vote, and then we have a Bible. Um, and so the idea behind that whole narrative, even if someone, someone wouldn't put it as crassly as that, is the idea that... The authority in these books is something granted to it at a later time. So they're not written with authority. They're, 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 they're infused with authority by some later church body, presumably some council or, or what have you, even though we have no real reason to think that that's what councils did or were doing. But people have this idea that these books were written with one, one purpose, but then they were sort of, in one sense, hijacked for another purpose later. The problem with that whole paradigm is that, A, it doesn't work historically, but it also doesn't work theologically when you read the books of the New Testament themselves. And I've argued extensively in both the books you're referring to and elsewhere that when the New Testament authors wrote, Paul in particular, they wrote with awareness of their own authority. And not only did they write with awareness of their own authority, but the audience would have obviously picked up on that and would have received these books, if they received them properly, as books that were to be received as authoritative, as the, 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 the uh, voice of an apostle. Um, and so you could argue that these books um, would have been received as authoritative documents from the very beginning um, and not didn't have to wait until some later vote uh, or church council just by virtue of Paul's apostolic office. Um, and if that's true, then suddenly you know, our, our understanding of canon looks very different. Now it doesn't look like something artificially imposed on books at a later date. Now it looks like something that may have grown up naturally internally to the books themselves. And that's, that's of course, the very argument I think that needs to be made. Yeah, you know, and one of the things, and I know you've, you've written about this in Canon Revisited, specifically about the definition of canon and the definition of Scripture, and maybe even expressing it because something like, hey, you know, Paul talks about other letters he wrote. You know, we have First and Second Corinthians, but in terms of just letters to, the, to those in Corinth, 
he obviously mentions these other letters. So were those letters not scripture then, if he wrote them, or not part of canon? Can you help us understand that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, so I argue that um, that scripture and canon, most of the time when we use the term scripture and canon, they're, they, they overlap, uh, meaning they're, 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 they're interchangeable to some degree. Uh, the only exception I make for that is the so-called lost letters, okay, where apparently someone would have written like Paul, and we, we know he did this, wrote under his apostolic authority and wrote letters to other churches that we don't have. So would those letters have been inspired? Well, sure, just like the letters we have. Uh, would, could, could we call those letters scripture? I think we could. I, you don't, I don't think you have to use that word, depending on the, what you mean by that word. Um, but yes, they would have been inspired writings like the inspired writings we have currently in our canons. So in that one situation, you'd have a book that was scripture but not canon because um, they didn't make it into our final collection. Um, but, but I think, you know, leaving that aside, the nomenclature more or less overlaps. And the reason I think we can leave it aside is because we, we just don't have those books. We, we know they exist in principle, but they don't exist now. Um, and when we talk about, you know, how we analyze a book and, and try to understand whether it belongs somewhere, we can only analyze and look at the books we actually possess. So I don't spend a lot of time dealing with the lost letters of Paul or presumably the lost letters of other apostles that may, may be out there. But they do exist in principle, and I think we could probably say that they were inspired. You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show, brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll-free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.